Hey, everybody, welcome to episode number 41 of the Vast Podcast. My name is Michael, and I am a semi regular co host here on the show with the incredible David Campbell and Jake Sweetman. Today, we have a conversation with Monique Dusan, the co founder of the Center for Biblical Unity. And just wanted to give you a heads up before we jump into this conversation that we had a myriad of tech issues and difficulties during this conversation. So from time to time, you may hear some lag in some of the back and forth, but it was such a great conversation. Just wanted to give you a quick heads up. If it sounds a bit different than most of our episodes, that is why. Well, that's enough from me. Let's jump into this conversation with Monique Dusan. We're here with Monique Dusan and um, from the Center for Biblical Unity. Monique, thanks for being with us today on the Vast. Thanks Podcast. for having me. It's good to be with you guys. Yeah, I'm excited. We've had this on the schedule now for a couple months, um, and we're really, uh, really excited to talk to you. Um, so we're going to talk about all things, you know, biblical unity, racial reconciliation, you know, all things in that vein. But maybe just to start out, like, give us a bit about your backstory. What led you to, um, you know, start the Center for Biblical Unity? What was the process to, to doing all that? Give us a bit of your background. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and grew up actually in an area called South Central Los Angeles. Just what I thought was a regular childhood. My mom, I, had a, um, I came from a single mom, and I have three siblings. And then we moved to a suburb of L.A. when I was 15, 16, somewhere, like right in between that age. Uh, in North Hollywood, and we lived what, like I said, like I just thought it was a regular life. We were um, socioeconomically lower on the lower spectrum of that, and I grew up with an understanding that you live from the position of being black first, that um, my blackness was basically everything. And so my friends were black. Um, my mom was very pro-black. My I feel like the people that I interacted with, teachers, leaders, and things like that, all spoke a lot of the same language of what it meant to be black and the struggles that black people faced and things like that. Um, and then, gosh, you, I went to Biola and Biola, which is a small university out here, Christian university, even my white professors re-influenced this narrative um, of what it meant to be black, what it meant to be, you know, someone who grew up in South Central Los Angeles. I remember one of my professors taking us on a field trip, a walking field trip around South Central Los Angeles, and me kind of thinking, hmm, this is just right, right around the corner from my old house, you know. But um, you know, this idea that that poor poorer black people did this or had this mindset or everyone had these exact same struggles. That was a lot of the narrative. Um, just in a lot of my sociology classes, I was a sociology major. Um, going, you know, fast forwarding from that, I moved to South Africa in 2014. So we're skipping ahead a good number of years, but I moved to South Africa in 2014 and, um, I wanted to work with lower income students. I had spent a lot of my career in social service, working with lower income, homeless, um, and homeless teens and families. 
And in South Africa, it was no different. It was to empower and to encourage students who found themselves um, on the the bottom end of the you know the curve, who um, by no no intention of their own, you know, um, or it wasn't by their own works that they found themselves struggling against gang violence and drugs that were in their homes and things like that. So I, I was in South Africa for four and a half years working with students and teachers doing a lot of more mental health work. But throughout this time in my life, I was doing these things from a, a narrative that said all black people are this way. All white people are that way. Everyone kind of fits into their own buckets. And if we truly want to be reconciled or have any kind of unity, well, then, you know, some people are going to have to do certain things. Other people are going to have to do other things. When I came home from South Africa in 2018, 2018 yeah, I ended up having a conversation with a friend who is now my ministry partner. And we just began kind of hashing things out. We saw things very differently. We both went to Biola, but she saw the world one way, which was, you know, more of um, what I now would consider historically Christian perspective. Um, What does it mean to be a human? Um, What are the definitions of things like marginalization and oppression? What does Micah 6-8 really mean? And I came from this view of, (laughs) see you already getting us off track. I see you. I see you. (laughs) Um, But then looking from my perspective of everybody, look, do justice. That's all you need to know. And so if that's all you need to know, well, then reproductive justice, a.k.a. abortion, you know, wealth distribution and, you know, things like that. And the fact that what it meant to be a human for some people was a lot different than what it meant to be a human for other people. So I had a lot of thoughts about just life and people based on my upbringing and and some of my teaching in um, university and just, like I said, on the street from teachers and things like that. And um, Krista... My ministry partner is Krista Bontrager. Um, she had another another set, another worldview, and we clashed. And we clashed and clashed and clashed until eventually in prayer, um, I felt the Lord, you know, really impressed it upon my heart that I was wrong and that I, too, had upheld racist beliefs um, and that I needed to repent for some of the ways in which I was viewing him was viewing white people, the way I viewed black people, the way I viewed the scriptures. And that that really is what started CFBU, this impression on my heart that there was something about what I was believing that was wrong and that I needed to repent for. It wasn't just like, you know, I took a wrong turn, went down, you know, the wrong street. Like I was in a trajectory of viewing <clears throat> humans um, in a way that was completely antithetical to scripture. And so I, I had some, some scripture searching to do. I had some repenting to do. And from that point on, as, um, as I dug more into the scriptures and had conversations with people, you know, many people, not just Krista, with many people, um, I, be, I started the Center for Biblical Unity to be able to use my voice to stand up against a culture that I saw coming against white people. I saw, um, and I'm sure we can get into all this because this is a long answer, but what I saw in the church and what I saw in the culture, especially in 2020 when we, were, when we founded CFBU, I saw many black people, brown people, even other white people coming against white Christians who are my brothers and sisters. 
and they were they were saying all kind of crazy things. There were tons of accusations, and I said, not I didn't say this. I felt like it was um, maybe a challenge. I don't know if a challenge is the right word, but it was um, a way that I could use my voice. I felt like um, it was the way that the Lord was leading to be able to stand up for everyone in the family, like to do justice. We just don't do justice for black and brown people. And I felt like many white people were being treated unjustly. Now, when I look at CFBU, CFBU is an organization that is meant for the whole family. I had my idea of don't talk about my brothers and sisters, you know, in Christ this way, I'm going to speak out. God had a completely different idea of how are you going to use your voice for the entire family? And that's people of every ethnic makeup, every skin color. So that's the very long story of how we got here. That's awesome. I'm uh, very glad that you started CFPU. I actually found you guys during 2020 um, because like everybody was caught up in the whirlwind of all of the tweets and all of the posts and everything and was trying to understand what was going on. Um, and at the beginning of uh, the, um, I guess kind of like you would call it, I don't know, the BLM coming to the forefront um, on social media and in the streets and everything. At the start of it, I think a lot of people are thinking like, oh, this is a moment of um, compassion and empathy and having healthy, good conversations. That's certainly the way that I thought about it. Uh, and then within a matter of a couple of months, um, started to realize there are some ideological things at bay here uh, that I wasn't even literally aware of before 2020 um, that I've come to read quite a bit about and found to be uh, not totally compatible with historic Christianity. Could you talk a little bit about the way that you viewed the world before and how that shifted to the way that you view the world now. You were already a Christian, but I guess you, what, was it like a matter of your theology catching up or what was it? I don't know if my theology caught up because I don't think that my theology was accurate. So I needed a paradigm shift. And I think that's that's what happened. That It was a complete paradigm shift. There were things about my theology that completely had to fall away. Um, what does it mean to be a human person? What does it, what, um, what did God speak over humans in the creation at the creation mandate? And how do I participate with that? And no, we're not saved by the old Testament, but I do believe that there are tons of things that we can glean from the old Testament and how we should accurately live our lives out today. And so when, um, when I talk about theology and needing a paradigm shift, if I serve a God who is just then how do I do justice? What is the definition of justice? The definition of justice must be extremely important to the Christian faith if we have a God who is just. Um, what is my definition of marginalization? The marginalized are mentioned in scripture. We see um, conversation around the marginalization, um, not marginalization of people, but the marginalized in scripture. And so if the marginalized are a category of people within scripture and marginalization is something that can happen to someone, I should probably have an accurate understanding of what it means to be marginalized because I'm told to use my voice on behalf of the marginalized and the oppressed. Now, if I if I have a um, a wrong view or a skewed view of what it means to be marginalized and oppressed, I might end up advocating for something sinful. An example of that would be 
to say, well, mm. all women are marginalized. All women are oppressed. So at the hands of male patriarchy, um, because all women are oppressed, we need to be freed from male patriarchy and have the choice to choose what we do with our bodies. As a woman who needs to be freed from the oppressive systems of a man and be able to choose what I do with my body, my body, my choice. If you don't understand what God spoke at the beginning of, about what it means to be a human person, what it means to do justice, what it means to be biblically minded in regards to who are marginalized and what the definition of a choice who is not is, you will argue for justice for the woman who is claiming my body, my biblically marginalized or oppressed by any means. When we look in the Old Testament and we see the definitions of marginalization and oppression, it has to do with, are you able to provide for yourself? Are you able to work? Are you, um, are you being treated with partiality? Or, or with favoritism, we are not to favor the rich or the great. We are not to favor the poor over the rich. We are not to favor the rich over the poor. Like looking at um, at justice and how we do justice had a, a connotation with it of um, like law courts and treating people equally. So just because I'm a woman does not necessarily make me marginalized or oppressed. Can I be marginalized or oppressed because I am a woman? Yes, but we need to look at these things through a biblical lens so that I have a biblical standard. And I am not just saying, well, all women are marginalized. Thus, she needs to be able to choose what she's gonna do with her body and be freed from this white male patriarchy. Because what you will find yourself doing at that route is then advocating for abortion. Does that make sense? if you play it all the way through. So I am now the person mm -hmm. advocating for the woman mm -hmm. who needs to be freed from her, her, her male patriarchy and all that follows that argument or that line. When women are freed from, from the male patriarchy, we can take that a couple steps further and you can get into feminism. You can get into the idea of my body, my choice. You can get into the idea of abortion. And abortion on demand. And we're seeing this play out in our culture, our culture and our country right now, right before our eyes. And no, this isn't a conversation on abortion, but it is a, an example in which I personally was advocating for something that was sinful because I saw blacks, women, um, minorities overall as being oppressed people without having a biblical definition of what it means to be oppressed. Wow. Okay, so I, I would love for you to connect this frame of thinking to the race discussion, because I guess there's some common threads there. Um, it sounds to me like you're talking, talking about something in the critical theory family, um, and I guess the conversation around intersectionality, it sounds like that's connected to what you're describing. But can you kind of just expound upon that a little bit? And I'm also so curious how... Because you yeah. went to Biola, which is a Christian university, right? And so how have we gotten to the point where so many Christians or professing Christians espouse these views that are very deeply unbiblical? Like, help help us understand how we even yes. got here well, in the first gosh. place. Critical theory is critical theory. So you can put race in, you, you can make um, critical theory applicable to race. 
but it's still a critical theory. You can make critical theory applicable to queer or um, LGBTQ plus ideologies, and you'll get a queer theory, critical queer theory. You can do that with a number of, of different issues. And so we see that a lot of that playing out. Um, how did this get into my the small Christian university that I went to? Well, we have to then understand critical theory and a bit of its history and where it came from. So, and I don't want to go all the way back to Marx and things like that, but what you see, many people, when they talk about critical theory, they bring up the Frankfurt School. And I will too, but I'm going to do it on the tail end. On the tail end of the Frankfurt School being in America, many of the um, Frankfurt School thinkers actually went back to Europe and continued during, doing work there. But Herbert Marcuse stayed. Um, he, I think he might have gone back for a small fraction of time, but he ended up doing a lot of work in America. He actually ended up doing work with Angela Davis. She became one of his protégés. If you are not familiar with Angela Davis, she's a black activist um, who got into a ton of trouble, I want to say in the mid to late seventies, but, um, she ran for like the communist, um, vice president of, of the communist party and things like that. And so Herbert Marcuse being a, a philosopher got into academia and not just Herbert Marcuse. There were other Frankfurt school thinkers, um, that also taught in American universities, but this way of thinking that the critical theory, um, process or thought process came into academia early on and it was taught as an academic framework. And so now what you see is, let's see, we go past, we go past Herbert Marcusa to um, Angela Davis. Angela Davis ends up getting in trouble, like I said, with the law and she now needs legal counsel. Well, one of the people on her legal counsel is Derek Bell. Derek Bell is the originator of critical legal studies. Critical legal mm-hmm. studies is like the father or grandfather of critical race theory. And who was the found, who are the originators of critical race theory? Well, two of the most prominent originators of critical race theory are um, Marimet Suda and Kimberly Crenshaw, who were students of Derrick Bell, who was on the legal team of Angela Davis, who was the mentee of Herbert Marcusa. So you can track it back. You can see how it touches um, different individuals, you know, pretty closely together. But still, this is an academic framework. It wasn't until 1987, I would say, when you get critical race theory, that things tend to explode or mushroom. And from 1987, I would say probably the next 10 years after it did stay in academia, but now we're, we're training educators in academia, um, under the assumptions of a lot of critical theory, critical race theory, especially. And as a teacher, now that I have been educated under this framework, I'm now taking this back into schools. No, I'm not necessarily teaching my students critical race theory per se from the book. I'm no, no one's teaching your first grader the tenets of critical race theory, um, like interest convergence or that racism is endemic um, or like, gosh, there, there's six that I'm thinking of. Um, so no, I'm not doing that. But 
I will walk out some of those tenants. I will participate with children as if those tenants are true. So it came into the mainstream culture through a lot of the academic structures that were already in place. I just read a um, an interview with um, Stefancia Chen Delgado, their husband and wife, and um, they in 2009 were saying, wow, we're so pleased with how well the critical race theory framework has taken, was taken and accepted in academia in the space of education in particular. So it's been in academia. It hasn't been on the popular level. 2020, I think, really created this quote unquote perfect storm for people who understood much of the framework Mm -hmm. to be able to say, hey, wait a minute, this isn't a framework in which we need to use to address injustice. It actually has Marxist tenets behind it. It isn't going to bring us to the place, you know, especially in the church, it's not going to bring us to the place of unity that it might promise. The the concept and the structures of anti-racism might put forward mm-hmm. a utopia, but truly it's not going to bring us to the biblical unity that we're searching for. Many, I think there are just 2020 just provided this um this container um that that really allowed mm-hmm. people to see what mm-hmm. was happening one in academia but two even among the larger culture in the school systems not because critical theory or critical race theory is actively being taught as a discipline to you know eight-year-olds, but because as I I heard James Lindsay say one day, um, critical race theory is as critical race theory does, that a lot of the tenants were being acted out. And so I hope that answers your question of how how it got here um, and where we are in a lot of this conversation. What, in what ways does, do these disciplines fundamentally teach people to view the world because I think that's, it's kind of in the drinking water. And so we just absorb it. Um, and we take on worldviews that maybe are not biblical worldviews. So help us like differentiate there. Like we're going to get to how the Bible teaches us to view the world. How well, it teaches you to, teach to, to view, the view the world through whatever the X is first. So as I mentioned earlier, you have things like critical race theory, you have critical queer theory, critical feminist theory, critical whatever theory. Um, so in the, the framework of critical race theory, you view the world through the lens of race first. In critical queer theory, you view the world through queer um, through queer theory first or um, LGBTQ plus theory first. You view the world through feminist theory, um, through feminism first. And so everything is seen through that lens. One of the, the first tenets in um, Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanchin's book, um, Critical Race Theory and Introduction, is that um, racism is everywhere. It's endemic. And so now with that lens, when I'm looking through that lens, I am no longer looking through um, a lens that may see sin. I'm looking through a lens that sees race and issues of race and injustice first. I am Mm. no longer looking as a Christian through a lens that um, that looks to see the good in people, that looks to see um, 
you know, redemption or what is possible. But I am looking through the lens of where is racism happening? This is um, a good practical example would be, um, what's her name now? The woman who wrote White Fragility, Robin DiAngelo. She says it. Robin DiAngelo. Yeah, I remember reading. It's not if it's happening. her book. It's when and where. Yeah. Yes. How right. how is racism happening? Yeah. <laughs> and so when you put that lens on, that's the first thing that you're looking at. When you um go ahead. Yeah. And and just to clarify real quick, just for people who haven't read it, like when she says that it's not if it's when. She doesn't mean it's not if it's gonna happen somewhere someday. She means in in all circumstances where there are uh I suppose in, in her mind, she's mostly thinking about white people interacting with people of color. It's not if racism is happening in those interactions, it's when and where the racism is happening. I think she gives an example of someone walking into a, a convenience store, right? Like something along those lines. And it's like, if, if the guy behind the counter doesn't help the person of color who walks into the store, it's racism. If they do walk up and help the person, it's racism because they're acting upon yes, suspicion. Yes, yes. Like so some will about? even look at this conversation right now. I'm having a conversation as a black woman with two white men. Where is the racism happening? Right. Yeah. Racism, racism is happening, is happening here. here. And so... But, but there's no evidence. As Christians, we're called to evidence. Now, a lot of mm. this could even be my own subjective mm. thought process. Michael's sitting there with his arms crossed. Why are you sitting there with your arms crossed? Because I'm black. Like, right. You know, <laughs> like it. it... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You are not being an ally. <laughs> right. So, you know, an- another thing is, um, you know, like the whole narrative tenet in critical race theory and, you know, this, this the idea of the power of storytelling and bringing someone along in your story. And we can do this even without evidence. This is problematic because in the scriptures, we are called to evidence. We are called to have two or three witnesses. May every matter be established with two or three witnesses. We don't need that um, with things like microaggressions. You know, it, it, it's it's my experience as the person of color, as the woman of color, which comes down to your conversation, Jake, on um, on like intersectionality and how many different ways can people be oppressed? Mm-hmm. Well, Michael has his arms crossed because mm-hmm. I'm black, but he also tilts his head to the left because I'm a woman. And I know these things because the last guy I was talking to also did that too. You know, it's, it's so subjective. And, you know, I know that some people will say it's, it's, it's not that white and black and things like that. But in, in reality, it, microaggressions are something that are very subjective. If, uh, and, and it goes to your point in, um, in Delgado's book, Richard, not Richard Delgado. Um, what's her name? Robin D'Angelo's book. Um, where she is saying, you know, if you walk into a convenience store and they don't speak to you, well, that that's proof of racism that it's occurring. And if they do speak to you, that's proof of racism Mm -hmm. that's occurring because of their bias that probably is believing that you're going to steal something. But what has anyone Mm -hmm. talked to the clerk of the store to get the evidence that Mm -hmm. yes, he is racist? I'm not saying he's not racist. He possibly could be. But I don't know if I don't have a conversation with him. 
if we don't gather our data. So, yes. Just the, the definition of terms is really important, right? Like, we can say a word like racism. Is the definition shifting at all in these various contexts? Like, if I'm thinking of racism biblically, or I'm thinking of racism within the framework of critical theory, are those different? Yes, definitely. When we talk about racism from a biblical perspective, um, one, we don't get the word race necessarily um, in the way that we use it today. And so what we would see in scripture Mm -hmm. in regards to um, the idea of racism today would be partiality. You know, not treating someone from a partial perspective or position based on their skin color or ethnicity, region of origin, not slandering them, um, not hating them because of ethnicity, region of origin, skin color, and things like that. Today's definition of racism circles around power and power dynamics. Who has the power? So, As a black woman, many would say that I cannot be racist because I do not hold the institutional power to be able to shift the trajectory of someone's life, to be able to make um, such influential decisions that could impact someone else's um, well-being. I do not have that institutional power. I do not have that wealth. So... A lot of our conversations on race and racism circle around power dynamics as white men in a society um, where the majority is white, number one, and, and two, when we look at who are the leaders, who are the business owners, that generally falls under white men. White men are seen to have the power. Thus, because they have, they hold the power, they hold the institutional power, they are seen as being racist. They participate in racist structures. And so participating in these white racist structures upholds the well-being for white people. So as a Christian, when we consider race, we first need to understand that race is not in the scriptures the way that we use it today. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when we think about the idea of racism, you're not going to find this idea of racism in the scriptures. What you will find is partiality mm-hmm. or this favoritism. And you'll see it mixed with like hatred or slander and things like that. Today, when we talk about racism, though, we're talking not about like the the one-on-one issues or the issues of moral ground or moral standard that we can see our parents or grandparents using. So someone belongs to the KKK. They are of a wrong moral standard. Mm-hmm. They have um, their own their own racist behavior. Today, racism refers to power dynamics. It is institutional and systemic. It is endemic. It is everywhere. And so when people talk about racism today, what they're saying is that people in power use that power, use those systems to maintain the, the, let's see, to maintain the the status Mm. of white people and yet to oppress or limit the movement or status of minorities. 
who are the people with the most power in America today? Well, people would say that would be white people, even if we had a black president. And it, I can explain the black president thing later on. But white men are the people who sit in boardrooms usually, who are the presidents of Fortune 500 companies and things like that. And so when we look at power dynamics, who has the power, whether or not you are God-fearing, you go to church, you love everybody the same, <laughs> that is not what people are talking about. People are talking about who has mm. power within our country. The power dynamics are what um, some would say influence racist behavior or racist mm. systems and racism. And so as long as those power dynamics are in place, mm -hmm. we need to work to overturn those power dynamics so that we can have a more equitable playing field. Mm. When you think about um, critical race theory and this idea of power. You can think about the definition of critical race theory that's offered by Richard Delgado and Jane Stefanich in their book, Critical Race Theory. Critical race theory, it says, is a movement that is meant to transform the relationship between race, racism, and power. Mm. So this isn't just the, I want you to change your heart, dear sinner. You need to understand that you are participating with certain people from a position of partiality. This is saying that all people who bear a certain skin color or a certain sex participate in systems that need to be overturned. Hmm. That sounds very um, postmodern, right? So like postmodernism will say that a claim to truth is a at its heart a, a power grab and that to say that one truth is uh that one statement or one belief is true and another is false is for that person who is putting something forward as true to be trying to maintain or to achieve power over the person who holds the other belief yes and, and so like where are you oh sorry no i was gonna say and because when you're talking about power when it comes to the race thing we're not talking about like physical power, like me as a white guy walking down the street, I'm not physically overpowering a person of color who passes me on the sidewalk, but somehow I am maintaining this power struggle. And we're, we, we kind of mean, I don't know, like not intellectually, but uh, help me out here. Like, is there a connection? Yes. So the idea of power being that, gosh, there, there's many different things that are kind of running through my head on, on which way to go. But the idea of, of power being that the structures that will support you will work to, um, to keep you alive to a degree. Mm -hmm. So there's a conversation that if you as a white person are walking down the street and another black man is walking down the street who is going to be kept alive if they encounter the police? Mm. The structures would work to keep the white person alive while they would work against the black person. Not my thought. I'm just putting that out there as, as a possibility in, in the realm of conversation mm -hmm. among those who uphold power dynamics. Mm -hmm. What are the ways in which, if we want to look at this in a lens of, um, 
like structural. So not just on the individual as like this man is walking down the street, that man's walking down the street. Many people will put forth the idea of um, like homes and buying homes, which loans are getting approved and for whom? Well, loans for white people are generally more approved, given more often than they are for black people. So there's a structure there that undergirds white people, that helps them to advance, that does not help black people to advance, um, and thus keeps us out of a wealth conversation or a wealth game that white people can easily advance in. Now, no one has brought in the conversation of Asians into to this wealth conversation, but this is also what um, certain frameworks like critical race theory do. They can um, isolate just two groups. Mm. And so in critical race theory, what we see is this black and white binary, but it doesn't allow for conversation oftentimes. And there are critical race theorists who would agree with me and say in the black and white binary. And then there's critical race theorists who disagree with the black and white binary and say we should be more inclusive. But the way that we see it playing out in real time is this black, white binary where Asian Americans are then left out. But if we were to look statistically at Asian Americans, I do believe that they actually receive more home loans than white Americans. So is the true conflict really between Blacks and whites? Or is it between Blacks and Asians? Or is it between white and Asians? Mm. Where, where do we find this power dynamic at? But today in our current culture, it is that we need to overturn white structures and white systems mm. so that we can help create a more um, equal or equitable society for people of color. So, like some of these issues are true, though, right? Like sometimes there are disparities that happen between people of different skin colors. Yeah. So, are there like shreds and grains of of truth to these ways of looking at the world? That I guess that's how all lies work, right? Like there's always some little shred of truth that makes the lie run. Just help me parse that out like a little bit, right? Because I feel like people are going to listen to this and go, well, sometimes those disparities are real. And sometimes it is, I don't know, what is it about? Is it about maintaining power? Is it about something else? I guess I would ask the question, is every disparity a sin? Hmm. Are Are there disparities that happen or inequalities that happen that are not sinful because right now every disparity that we are being presented with is being presented as a sin, Mm, the sin of racism Mm -hmm. or the sin of partiality. Mm -hmm. Every disparity is not a sin. Mm. Some disparities are the product of natural order. We have different trees. There are disparities in trees that I can't do anything about that. Now, when I look at um, disparities in wealth between men and women, I can take a number of different approaches as to why those disparities may be there. Could it be because men don't want to pay women or corporations don't want to pay women the same that they pay men? Sure. Mm -hmm. Of course, that can be an option. Mm -hmm. But can it also be an option that women 
get pregnant and they go out on maternity leave. And some women stay home and, you know, they're home for years, homeschooling their kids. And then when kids get big, you know, and they're in their junior high school years and they don't need mom to be home as much, they go back into the workforce. I see. So it's not ignoring the issue. It's, but it's a difference in uh, what options are we going to allow ourselves to help us understand the root of the issue. So in a yes. in this critical theory framework, it's I it's putting everything down to whatever the oppressed oppressor dynamic is versus looking at things objectively and saying let's get to the bottom of what the the real problem is. It's almost like I guess in a CRT framework, it's like racism becomes the original sin that it has explanatory power for every evil in the world. Yes, and some Christians who uphold some of the critical theory or critical race theory tenets would say that America's original sin is racism, right, yeah. using the idea of federal headship and saying that where Adam, um, you know, where all sin mm -hmm. came through Adam, well, mm -hmm. racism came through our founding fathers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is completely problematic. Right. The, but, the biblical view would be that racism or partiality, if we were used to, to use the biblical word, came through Adam. <laughs> it, it is an expression yes. of sin. It is an expression of sin. Right. And we are tribal people. See, racism is our tribalism kind of just gone mad. Mm -hmm. Racism is our, our community that the fact that people weren't meant to be alone, that it is not good for man to be alone, mm -hmm. that we are communal people gone mad. It mm -hmm. has gone very, very skewed as we were to say in South Africa, it's kind of gone wayward. Mm -hmm. um, this idea that we can tribalize around any, I can tribalize, tribalize around cake. Mm -hmm. I give this example a lot. If I were to form a little tribal group, it would be around cake. All the cake eaters unite. Mm -hmm. I love cake. I would join Unfortunately, that <laughs> you said what? I said I would join that tribe. <laughs> please, please. But I mean, if we here, it, so here's let let's use Kendi's um, example. So Kendi's like when Ibram X Kendi he wrote um, how to be anti-racist. How to be an anti-racist mm -hmm. and stamped from the beginning. Let's say we were to completely annihilate racism. Like racism is done. That thing is so old. We're so done. Mm -hmm. Now, according to the critical race theory perspective, racism will only be done once white people see that it's to their benefit. Black people also understanding that it's to their benefit. This is called interest convergence. But let's say we get rid of racism and all of, you know, the isms that Kendi lists in his book, because according to Kendi, all the isms are kind of linked together. Mm -hmm. So you can't be anti-racist and not be feminist. You have to be both. Mm, right. You have to stand, you know, for all of these things. I cannot be anti-racist. So I can't be for the eradication of racism and yet stand and say that homosexuality is wrong. Right. That would be in conflict. So let's say, you know, we follow Kendi's vision for his utopia. We get there. People are going to rally and unite around cats or around dogs, birds. People are tribal and we will find our tribe. Mm -hmm. And we, we find our tribe oftentimes to the detriment of another tribe. 
Does it make it right? No. But we do have to understand that as sinful humans, this is part of living in a sinful and fallen world. Kendi's idea is to get us to utopia. Hoorah! Great. I can't wait. Unfortunately, the utopia that we're longing for is heaven. It is not a utopia that can ever be built or designed on earth. I guess, except to say that there is some experience and expression of that heavenly reality in the church in its most ideal state. And I think that that again comes down to a fundamental disagreement in what is the problem that uh, most accurately describes the human condition. I remember seeing a video uh, a year or two ago of, of Ibram X. Kendi talking in a, a church of all places. And he was saying something along the lines of the church's problem is that we have a savior theology and we need to have a liberation theology. And yes. that sounds, you know, I guess you can hear that and at face value, go, oh, that sounds fine. You know, yeah, we want to see people get liberated. We don't want people to be oppressed. The problem is, is it, it moves, uh, it moves the root of the issue out of the human heart. And the biblical picture that I see is that the issue is with the human heart. That's all throughout the Old Testament is there's this cry for we need a new one because our, our current one sucks. And what the gospel does is it transforms our heart so that the church is a community of people who recognize their sinners in need of a savior, not just in need of external liberation, who then come together and are united in Christ. Christ is their tribe, so to speak. So that what we are uniting around and in is not some arbitrary passion or something that is uh, like skin color. It's rather being found in him. Yes. So I tend to say, because what, what, what Kendi's talking about is black liberation theology, this idea that we need a liberator. Um, and his parents were, you know, influenced, believed by black liberation theology and all of that. But that idea that we do not need a savior, we need a liberation, mm -hmm. removes Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or it makes I, Jesus someone that he did not set out to be, I guess. I think for Kendi, in, in what I've heard him say, I don't... I think that he would say that that is the white Jesus. Right. That is the white man's God. And so one, I think that that is, one is extremely problematic. Um, two, it, it extremely truncates any thought of what or who God is and um, his, his design and desire for humanity. But when I say that it removes, it removes Jesus it removes the savior because it, 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 he literally says we need to exchange our savior mentality. The fact that in the church, we need a savior for the fact that we need liberation. I only get liberation through a savior. Mm. What are, what am I being liberated from? Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I don't need to be liberated necessarily from my earthly conditions. Mm -hmm. Paul says that no matter what his earthly circumstances, he has learned to abound. Mm -hmm. I need to be liberated from the sinful nature of my wretched and sinful heart. Mm -hmm. The things that continuously compel me toward evil. Right. And so that is where I think, you know, Kendi's idea 
is extremely problematic, Mm -hmm. but much like the person that he is, um, I I would say referencing to a degree, James Cone and his liberation theology Mm -hmm. and what it means from an Old Testament Exodus perspective. Right. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, we don't speak out on behalf of the poor, the apart, the, the oppressed, the marginalized. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that, you know, we don't give and do things um, in community to help people in their circumstances. Mm-hmm. No, I don't believe that at all. I, yes, we do, we do. We give. This is who we are as Christians. Mm-hmm. We set up hospitals. We set up orphanages and things like that. And yet that is not my number one problem. My number one problem is my need for a savior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And until we get that clear, mm-hmm. we're always going to have problems. Mm-hmm. And that was the way that Jesus seemed to approach his mission. Like he says in Luke 4, um, I'm here to fulfill uh, what the prophet said, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. But he doesn't do a single thing to set Jerusalem free from its Roman oppression. Yes. In the sense that he's not or there. Or from the slavery. Yeah, he's not there for a for a political revolution. And even when having that conversation with Pilate, he says, my kingdom's not of this world. Yes. And yet I also think that because of the Christian influence and because of the life of Christ, we can see Paul write to Philemon regarding Onesimus and telling him mm-hmm. to treat Onesimus as a brother. So you can already see the shift in mm-hmm. system because right. of the heart. attitude of heart. Yeah, yeah. Well, Michael, now that I, I think, you know, I know we're like, we got just a few minutes left. Um, so I guess Michael's would just be in closing, you know, there is so much talk about racial reconciliation and what does this supposed to look like in the church? I, I guess maybe just in closing, tell us what, what that's supposed to, to look like. Should we work for racial reconciliation What's the difference between that, if any, and what we would call biblical unity? And what are the outworkings of that look like in the body of Christ? And even more importantly, I guess, in a local community, like a local church community. Yeah. Um, I don't know how y'all gonna feel about this, but I don't believe in racial reconciliation. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's completely made up. What does that mean? In scripture anywhere. I didn't expect those words to come out of your mouth. We don't, we don't find it in script. Where, where, point me to a verse that talks about race is reconciling. Uh, point, okay, I, I can track with your frame of thinking. Keep going. Okay, so what most people do is they point to 2 Corinthians 5. Right. If we were to read 2 Corinthians 5, it says that I have given you the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling sinful hearts to a holy God. Right. This ministry... Um, that and, and Paul says, you know, if I were if I were out of my mind, would I be doing this? As some people have accused me of being, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. I do not disagree with that. I will I can get on a platform and talk about the ministry of reconciliation. I cannot talk about the ministry of racial reconciliation because it's not really a thing. Reconciliation in the scriptures, and it's a specific word. So there's like three kind of different there's I want to say three, not four. Three different forms of reconciliation this word is used three different times Mm -hmm. um 
in regards to 2 Corinthians 5, which many people will say we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, thus racial reconciliation. Right. No, we've been staying in context. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation, telling people that, that a way has been made back to God. Right. We reconcile sinful hearts to a holy God. That's reconciliation. Now, when I move over to Ephesians, I can look at the... The, the dividing wall of hostility. The, the dividing wall of hostility being broken down. That's Ephesians 2. Mm -hmm. But I can look at Ephesians 1 and look at the adoption. Mm -hmm. So when my heart comes into to right union and communion with a holy God, John 1 tells me that to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I am brought into the household of faith. I am now adopted according to his good pleasure. And the dividing wall of hostility is now torn down. There is now, according to Colossians, no Scythian, barbarian, slave, free. We have that reconciliation afforded to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. John 17, 21 to right. 23, I believe it says, is that he had, he prayed for our unity, that he has given us what we need for our unity. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells them to maintain their unity. You can't maintain something that you got to, um, if, if you haven't already got it how are you maintaining the the sweatshirt on your back right now you're gonna wash it you're gonna make sure it's hung up you know all of those things you're gonna maintain it to keep it in its proper condition mm -hmm. but if you didn't have a sweatshirt on you wouldn't maintain it mm -hmm. you have we maintain what we've been given we've been given unity and reconciliation mm -hmm. through the power of the holy spirit races reconcile mm -hmm. so to speak when all people come into relationship with right. jesus right this is the, so yeah. the, the idea of this racial reconciliation. I can't get on. I can't get on board with now. Can we talk about evangelism? Right. Sure. Right. Making sure that your church looks like your neighborhood or your community. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. But the idea that, you know, white people, because this is this is really racial reconciliation. White people need to acknowledge their wrongs, mm -hmm. confess their complicity in racism, mm -hmm. lament their white privilege do this privately and publicly and then redistribute wealth so that society can be more equitable mm -hmm. in order for us to have unity. Cool. If you win culture, but in the church, the devil is a lie. Mm -hmm. Like that is not the way that we participate with others according to the scripture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nor would I say that is a very good way of going about actually creating the utopia that they desire. I think, what it does is it increases people's suspicion of one another and creates more racial division than it does reconciliation. Yes, because I'm sure if I came after your wallet, you're going to look at me with some suspicion. <laughs> yes, but even before you get to my wallet, if you just go around saying that I am uh, uh, that I'm a racist and there's nothing I can do about it, <laughs> it's going to breed some relational issues right. between us. But it's like, you know, in the culture, if that's what you want to do, you know, I, I feel like the, um, Paul says something like, you know, he has no jurisdiction over the culture. The culture is going to, the culture is going to cult. They're right. going to do what they're going to do. Mm. But in the church, we are given our family rules. We are given the way that we are to treat one another. We are told um, that we should not be um, interacting with people from a place of their past sins. Mm -hmm. People are new creations. Mm -hmm. Read 2 Corinthians 5 all the way through. Great. 
But yet what we do is we adopt cultural lingo, cultural mores and norms, and then we bring these things into into the church and create basically mm-hmm. a, 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 a culture of... We bring the culture inside the church, mm-hmm. and then we try to baptize it in Jesus. And I, I and that see that a lot, like mm-hmm. even in sometimes seemingly innocent ways where things are going on in the world in terms of the way the world approaches um, uh, the subject of, of race and ethnicity. And I think a lot of times people go like, oh, we just need to do the, like, the church version of that, the Christian version of that, and making sure that we're mirroring the same kinds of activities that are going on. Um, and... I, I guess we shouldn't automatically assume that those are the right ways of going around achieving what the biblical vision is of of unity. I would go so far as to say that Christianity is a radical religion. Hmm. And so if I am looking around, I'm like, you know, the culture is doing that. I should be seeking to figure out what in the world is the opposite of that. Hmm. That's a mess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is, what's the, op- like, how can I do something that, that it can't be that. Now, I don't know exactly what the word of God says, but I know it don't look like that because a lot of that is the culture. Mm-hmm. We need to be looking at, does that mean that the culture can never do good? No, I'm not saying that. Does that mean that the culture can never borrow from my Christian worldview? I'm not saying that, but we need to make darn sure that as we interact with brothers and sisters, that we are doing so from a Christian perspective, from a scriptural mandate, because otherwise we might be participating in mm-hmm. sin with those that we call our brothers and sisters. Which I guess that's kinds, a problem. Kinds of brings it, kind of brings it full, full circle to where you began, because where you began was describing a life where you used to view reality through the lens of black first, and now the what I hear you describing is viewing reality through the lens of uh, Christian first, your identity as a follower of Christ. And I think that's a really tricky thing. I I would say, especially for, um, for my generation, and I don't know how old you are, Monique, but um, I'm a millennial. And so I look around at other millennials and Gen Z years, and it seems like even in the church, there's not always an immediate understanding that my Christian identity takes precedent over uh, other identifying factors that are true about me as well. Yes. Even to the point when that, when I talk about uh, my community, I think what's in people's mind, first of all, when they think about my community is not necessarily the church. They might be thinking other people who look the same as I do. And I think Christianity flips that on its head so that our community first and foremost is our brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, that's not to say that what is unique about us is not beautiful and God-ordained and special and and even a part of God's plan for how he wants to use us to reach the world. Mm-hmm. But it's not the same as uh, belonging to Christ and the people who belong to Christ as well are the ones that are I'm in first relationship with, I guess, for lack of a better term coming to my mind. Yeah, our our unity is founded on Jesus Christ. That is that that then forms my community. Mm. And there are tons of, you know, other black people and we don't have we don't share true unity. Because we don't all share 
in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. The same way that there are other white people Mm -hmm. and y'all don't share in true community because those people might not um, have a foundation Mm -hmm. that is Jesus Christ. Our identity in Christ is first. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Yeah, really good. Monique, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. So glad to. We'll Thanks for inviting me on. Of course. Awesome. We'll definitely have to do this again. And we're so close. We'll have to do the next one in person or yeah, something. Really you know should. what I mean? Yes. Yeah. That'd that would be, be a lot of fun. We'll throw James Crocker in the mix. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Cool. Monique, have an awesome rest of the week. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye.